Hello, this is your host, Sonata Allison, and welcome back to the Parallel Podcast, where we talk about sexuality as it should be. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Parallel Podcast. So as you can see, I have the Jay Stringer on the podcast. I was literally thinking I could end the whole podcast on this episode. I actually thought about it, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Oh, speaking of that, remember guys, I do not do episodes in December. So we have this month, next month, and then we'll pick back up in January. But anyways, man, I I read Jay's book. And as you guys heard in my last episode, uh, my last solo episode called Masturbation and Self-Soothing, I talked about his book because it's just so good in helping you understand um, uh, pornography and unwanted sexual behavior from a more compassionate and loving perspective. Um, so it's an honor to have him on the podcast. You'll hear me say that probably like three times throughout this episode, (laughs) but so insightful, so much to learn. I would encourage you guys to even sit down with different pieces of this and write it out, journal about what you're learning because he's so helpful, such a great teacher. So that is that. So before we jump in, I want to remind you guys of the free virtual event that we're doing called Godly Pleasure on November 1st and 2nd um, at 6 to 9. That's Eastern time. Hold on. I just rhymed just now. That was kind of spicy. But anyways, the event will be about a relationship with Christ, sexual desire, and also how to handle temptation. So if you'd like to join, you can go in the description of this episode and click the link where we can do a pre-call or you can just DM me the words God's plan and join that way. Looking forward to chatting with you guys. All right, without further ado, let's get right into it. Hey, Jay, how are you doing today? Hi, Sonata. I am doing great today. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So when I have a new person on the podcast, I'm asked them this question or something similar to it. Um, What is something you believe to be true about God and why? (laughs) It's a great question. Um, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind is just the notion that God is kind. So like very central to not just like my therapeutic work, but I would say my understanding of spirituality is that um, I think I'm always a bit taken aback by the notion of God's kindness to us. Um, And so just thinking about even like Jesus serving his people, uh, that the God of the universe would get down on his knees to offer bread and wine in the midst of everything that the disciples had done for betrayal, not being exceedingly loyal, their own ego, um, and that God longs to serve. So I think in that we just see so much kindness. Uh, And I I know kindness is one of those things that we sometimes associate with niceness, but I know Mm. when people are kind to me, particularly in places of my own failure or in places where I just don't want to deal with people, uh, kindness feels offensive. I would much Mm. rather have people just like condemn me, judge me. So I don't have, but, uh, to be confronted with kindness in the midst of failure is a humiliating grace. Mm. So that was beautiful. And I was thinking of grace as you were talking about kindness. So that makes perfect sense. And as you were talking too, Mm -hmm. I think about Peter, how he's like, don't even come near me. Like I'm too dirty. I don't deserve to be around you, God. So definitely yes. yep. hear that thought process. Yeah. And then in the midst of his, you know, betrayal, um, when right. Jesus shows up post-resurrection, uh, Jesus is making a charcoal fire and Peter had denied Jesus over a charcoal fire three mm. chapters earlier. So that notion of Jesus coming back with a reminder of his betrayal, but a sense of, I'm here to make you breakfast. Um, that I think is Jesus. Where oh, man. There is a reckoning with my story, a reckoning with what I have done, but far more it's in the context of, do you want to have breakfast this morning? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, there's no, a little bit of humor in there with Jesus too. <laughs> no, I think so. I do think so. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. I feel like as I've gotten closer to the Lord, I'm like so much closer to the brink of tears just talking about how good he Mm. is so 
Ah, mm-hmm. oh, man, that's so good. But so before we start, I want to give you your flowers um, because your book, man, I literally, I don't remember any authors, any like celebrities' names, can't put the face to the name, but Unwanted, Jay Stringer, it's mm. you and Gottman that I can remember the names of authors. Um, so I actually <laughs> used- kind of. Yeah. How did you hear about it? Or where so did my, you Yeah, my church did, did a group for it? men actually with the book. And um, mm. I'm going to be doing a group next year for women at my church. Yes. Um, so I wanted to read it. It was actually supposed to be around this time, but we pushed it back to next year. Um, so that's mm. how I got introduced to it. And I've been using it in my therapy. And I okay. had someone do your assessment and then they're reading the book as okay. we we're doing therapy, yeah. couples therapy. So his wife was uh, mm. alongside us and he's great okay. now, like Beautiful. went through the whole process, not having issues anymore. So it's mm. just beautiful. You're doing great work and it's actually working. Thank so I just you. want people to hear that. Like this book is mm. it's not just a book mm-hmm. that people read and it's like, oh, well, that was okay. It's actually changing people's lives. So just wanted you to hear yeah, that. I hope so. I mean, it's deeply rooted and kind of my understanding of the gospel did a lot of research around it and then informed by a lot of my own clinical practice as well. So that mm-hmm. was kind of the, when I was writing, it was like this, this needs to work. Um, and it can't just be kind of good speech that bypasses the human heart and story. Yeah. So that's good to hear, but even more encouraging to hear that you'll be leading a group next year. Please yeah. let me know how that goes. Oh, I for sure will. And if I need you, I'll, I'm yeah. going to try to reach out to you. <laughs> Help me yeah, out. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay. So um, I'm going to have you tell the people who you are, what you do, and then we'll go from <clears> there. Sure. Uh, my name is Jay and I live uh, in New York. We moved from Seattle to New York City during COVID. Uh, so I have a wife who's also a psychotherapist. We met in grad school a uh, very beautiful process, but also like just, it, it, you know, that phrase in psychology of like, you know, just enough to be dangerous that definitely <laughs> described our first few years of marriage, wow. uh, just having some data and insight, but it wasn't for the sake of kind of love and edification. It was to kind of much more used for contempt purposes. Mm. So um, we live in New York. We have two kids. Uh and I am a author. I wrote the book Unwanted, working on another book, and then do a lot of intensives right now uh, connected to unwanted sexual behavior. So people that are trying to outgrow porn, people that are dealing with extramarital affairs, kind of just any dimension of someone's sexual life, uh, even a low sexual desire that is just kind of causing some difficulties in someone's life tends to be my area of practice. Yeah. So. Yeah. So in hearing all that, it's like, wow, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking the church doesn't usually talk about these things, not really hearing the word pornography, low sex drive from the pulpit. Um, So how did you find (laughs) yourself like in this space, like doing research and talking about the topic of pornography Mm -hmm. and like, I guess, sex in general? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my middle school self would be horrified that we'd be having this conversation. <laughs> like, did not anticipate having this at all. That's great. Um, I, you know, I was in seminary, also grad school. So I was getting my Master of Divinity and also my Master's in Counseling Psychology. And uh, the program that I went to uh, when we were thinking about doing kind of Master of Divinity work, we were primarily thinking about church planting. And so if you know anything about church planting, not a lot of budget uh, for that. And so especially Mm -hmm. we were trying to plant a church in an area of North Seattle that had a lot of homelessness, uh, commercially exploited men and women, uh, just a lot of kind of unhoused neighbors. So that sense of like how... How are we going to make money off of you know ties? That's probably not going to happen. So started thinking about bivocational ministry and like, oh, I could be a therapist. I care about this stuff. Uh, and because of the church plant being involved where it was, the city of Seattle had started something called a John School, uh, which was basically a program developed in the city of Seattle for men who were arrested for soliciting. Uh, women in prostitution. And so they had asked if anyone from our community, our neighborhood could come in to talk about the neighborhood impact of Johns as they are known. Uh, And so I came in, talked about, you know, just what it means to kind of deal with 
men driving around our neighborhood trying to find women in prostitution, the disruption that that causes to families, but then kind of ended the talk with a sense of like, as men, we have to do our work to understand why the demand even exists. So it's not so much a sense of, you know, blaming someone else. At the time, it was a more expensive crime to be a woman in prostitution than to be a man arrested. Mm. It was like a hundred dollar fine, but far more serious for uh, the women that were being exploited. And so kind of just made this call to invite them as men to do some of their own work. And the city had invited me back to knew that I was a therapist and then kind of invited me to do some work with these men. And that's where I started just learning a lot of pattern recognition Mm -hmm. of kind of why do men buy sex? But then within that came into just a lot of other issues like porn, infidelity. And I certainly had a lot of my own uh, porn struggles in college, grad school. So it like kind of part of my own story was wrapped up in that. But then I started reading just a lot of the predominant, you know, Christian resources out there and they were just terrible. Mm-hmm. They gave really bad advice. They weren't rooted in science or research. Um, some of them I think were actually very harmful to the marriages that were reading them. And uh, so I think I just started paying attention to a lot of the patterns of why people were doing what they were doing. And that's what I care about as a therapist is like, why do people do what they do? So I don't care about how many statistics there are, of how many men watch porn or 30% of women are now porn users. Like those things are important to know, but it doesn't tell us anything about the why. Mm -hmm. And so that led me to the decision to do some original research and writing on what is driving this epidemic. So, you know, the church is usually uh, trying to encourage people to do a lot of lust management, like get into accountability, internet monitoring, just say no, pray this away. And it just does not work at all. And so trying to really think about how do people really get free from this? And so that was the decision to do research of what could we learn about people that were struggling? Uh, So we asked a lot of questions about family of origin, adverse childhood experiences, and the specifics of the types of fantasies that people seek out on the internet, like what type of porn, what's your Google search? So uh, very fairly, invasive. <laughs> not, very invasive. Um, but just like trying to understand how does all this stuff fit together? Yeah. And then we led that research project. And basically, the thesis of what we found is that unwanted sexual behaviors are not random. Uh, they are a direct reflection of the parts of our story that re- remain unaddressed. And so the implication there is that. Uh, the sexual difficulty that you are facing right now is a roadmap to healing and growth, not this life sentence to sexual shame or addiction as is often presented. So uh, I think that this is a hopeful message, uh, but it's also rooted in, I'm not trying to bypass uh, sin or unwanted behaviors, but I'm trying to say embedded within the difficulty, embedded within the sin are clues to the healing and growth that we need to begin so yeah Yeah. and i have never read a book about this um topic from such a gracious and loving like it it felt like a warm hug like i I, that's how i hope people Mm -hmm. read it and feel Mm -hmm. like you are being held but also also being held accountable so i think you did a good job of bridging that those two things i've never heard it put that way a warm hug yes (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, I hope people do have that sense of like that they are being known. And that's that's been part of the delight of being an author is you get these emails from people that are saying like, this was the first time that I felt like you were either reading my mail, or you were Mm -hmm. the first person to kind of really understand or put language to things that I had some suspicion that this is probably true. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know, that sense of being a warm hug is really what we need that sense of attunement of someone can kind of see with empathy into a difficult situation that I'm experiencing and sees me not with eyes of condemnation, but with a sense of curiosity about why the problem is present. And I mean, that's, that's what the gospel is about. That's what good parenting is about. That's Mm -hmm. what good friendship is about. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you, you did all those things, <laughs> but as you were talking to the, the assessment did a great job, um, of like really like laying things out for people and helping them know, like, how can I actually get helped now? You've shown me I'm naked yep. now. Right. But like, how can I be helped? And that really helped my one client mm-hmm. that I was talking about earlier. Um, obviously I talked to him about the things he might not need to share with his wife and being mindful because it's very like, you yes. know, you really know <laughs> with that assessment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. And we went with that assessment. We just, we wanted people to have some compass headings because if you, let's say your clinician or your therapist or your pastor isn't used to having these conversations and you don't even know where to begin that assessment is just a really helpful tool. It's, you know, it's, it's not going to get down to the dirt of someone's life, like into the ground level, but it is going to do like a 10,000 foot flyover. And it's going to say, what are some major themes in your life that might be driving some of what you're dealing with? Mm -hmm. And then it's up to a good clinician like you, good pastoral counselor to be able to say, Okay, like there were some high rigid scores within your father relationship with your dad, or maybe, you know, you mentioned this kind of experience of abuse or trauma, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So think of it as kind of compass headings, and kind of give you some language for what might be driving it. Yeah. And I think it did a great job of that. Um, and he was able to even recall some of the language and he come to the session, like I was reading this and I, he like, he woke his wife up, like you mm. need to read this. <laughs> so he was really engaged, like really, really grateful for the language you've given him and how, and the understanding mm. that you've given him about himself. Um, and in addition to that, you naming it unwanted at first, I'm like, oh, but what if they want to, I think that's the hard part with like, an addiction to pleasure. It's like, I want to be pleased, but also I don't want to feel this way. So what made you choose the term unwanted behavior or unwanted? Yeah. unwanted. Yes. You're, you're exactly right. There's always this kind of deep ambivalence, like being pulled in two different directions of, I want this thing. And then at other times I don't want this thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Some of that was a conversation with my publisher. Some of it was rooted in kind of work that I was doing with clients. So this might be information that's not necessarily helpful for your audience to know, but Mm. like within sex therapy or within kind of the treatment of sexual problems, there are two predominant approaches. So there is the certified sex addiction therapists, and then there are the certified sex therapists. And they do not like each other at all. So (laughs) one side sees uh, the other as kind of pathologizing normal sexual behavior, you know, not giving any access to sex education, kind of like uh, just that sense of like a disease model that everything is broken. They're always going to be struggling with Mm. this. And then the other side, the addiction side critiques the sex therapy side for just being Uh, far more permissive, not asking challenging questions, letting people get away with denial, possibly normalizing uh, particular sexual behaviors. But then the certified sex therapy side is kind of saying, stop bringing shame and stigma to everything that you all are doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's try and help people to understand their sexual life so that they... uh, live with less shame and the less shame that they will have, the more healthy their sexual behavior will become. So, you know, there's truth on both sides and there's also binaries and dogmatism on both sides. So Mm -hmm. in my approach, there was like an attempt to kind of carve out something of a third way where I don't want to pathologize all behavior and just name it as an addictive compulsive behavior. But I also don't want to dismiss sexual problems as like irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there might be good insight that certified sex therapists provide, but they don't actually provide a developmental path of, okay, here's the meaning, let's minimize the shame. But then I'm always like, but then what? Like, what's the developmental model that you are working with to teach people how to outgrow behaviors or help them to understand why a particular behavior became appealing to them in the first place? So unwanted was kind of 
that attempt to be able to say, yes, there are portions of our life that we want, but then what I'm interested in working with is kind of that existential cry of someone that just kind of says, I, I don't want this at the end of the day. I look at the shame that this brings in. I look at the disruption that this brings to my marriage. I look at kind of like, I can't believe I wasted another weekend looking at porn. What mm-hmm. am I doing with my life? And that sense of like, I want this, but at the end of the day, this is unwanted. So mm-hmm. it was also a bit of a double entendre where, you know, the more that you stay in these behaviors, the more that you can feel unwanted and undesirable. So not a perfect word, but a word that we had to pick because I didn't want to use addiction and yeah. I also didn't want to just normalize it. But I think most people can get behind there's portions of my life that are unwanted and mm-hmm. I want to be curious about those. Yeah, and I definitely that kind of sums up the struggle for sure. Um, and I think as you're talking about shame and feeling unwanted by others and also un- not wanting behavior, I mm. think that's why it's kind of beautiful that you talk about uh, unmet needs and things like that. So what made you include the chapter about like learning to love and care for yourself? Mm-hmm. A lot of things. Um, so it, it, Dr. Gabor Mate, kind of one of the world's leading uh, trauma therapists, uh, wrote a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, also uh, The Myth of Normal. The way that he's been describing trauma is that trauma is not just what happens to you, but trauma is what happens inside of you in the absence of an empathetic witness. Mm. So trauma is not what happens to you, but trauma is what happens inside of you in the absence of an empathetic witness. So in that respect, the trauma is not just kind of the classic big T trauma, of, you know, 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, a catastrophic life event, there are also traumas that we undergo that uh, we didn't have an empathetic witness in the midst of being bullied, in the midst of being abused, in the midst of just kind of feeling like we really needed some support. And so I think a lot of us come from families, come from communities where we were not really seen or cared for. And so in that respect, repentance is not about feeling like crap about yourself. Repentance is about caring Mm. for the parts of your life and your story that were never cared for or addressed. Uh, And so that sense of a lot of us lived a lot of life kind of dysregulated by trauma, dysregulated by a lack of kind of warm hugs to borrow your language. And so that sense of learning to care for ourselves is learning how to bring soothing and calm and stability to our life instead of outsourcing the solution to an unwanted behavior. So the more that we can develop that sense of kindness, movement towards ourselves with, uh, you know, compassion, understanding, the healthier that we will become and the more regulated we will become. And so I think that's primarily when the, you know, the wounds of childhood are healed, not so much through a therapist or having a good friend, but in our adult commitment to bring, you know, healing and self-compassion to some of those wounds that we have been through. So Mm. it's an essential component of not only healing, but also growth. Yeah. Yeah. And that definitely reminds me of the second greatest commandment. Like, I feel like people, go, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to like die on this hill. I will die on this hill that the church needs to talk more about the second greatest commandment where it says to love others as yourself. Why do we not talk about that yeah. portion? And I feel like a lot of churches say, I've heard someone say, oh, well, you already love yourself enough. So focus on like what? No. We're, we're not spending enough time yeah. on loving ourselves as well. And the Lord calls mm-hmm. us to do that. He commands us to do it, actually. So I love that yes. you included yeah. that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I, you talked about sensuality as well. And I, that's kinda, I feel like that's a trigger word for sure. Like, oh, we're sensuality. So can you talk a little bit about, <laughs> like, do you think that God actually wants us to be sensual? And what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. I do think that God wants us to be sensual. So, I mean, I think like just even when we think about, uh, there's a couple of different categories that I would go to. The first would be um, 
some theologians will talk about how sex is taken from this Latin word sicare, which means uh, to sever, to amputate from the whole. So mm-hmm. the image would be like, think of like a tree that you just kind of rip off a branch from. Uh, in the old English, you would say that I just sexed the tree. So sex then is this awareness that I have been disconnected and part of the way that I go about reconnecting. So these theologians will distinguish between sexuality versus genitality. So like Ronald Rollheiser would say, when you're at a funeral and you see this widow crying, uh, that is an expression of her sexuality because it's a sense of like this this place of union this place of deep intimacy and belovedness has been severed and the tears are an expression of a longing for reconnection to be uh one again uh same thing with like a baby crying in a crib that it might feel wrong to say like that child is being sexual but like we are sexual from the time that we are in utero so that sense of like uh, listening to our mother, our father's voice, being attuned to that, wanting to be held, wanting a warm hug, that is all an expression of that sense of, I am disconnected from someone, and how do I go about reconnecting? So mm-hmm. that would be, you know, that sense of like, it's it, we're always sexual all the time. There's mm-hmm. never this moment that I can say that I am not a sexual being. I mean, it's, yeah, if you get into ultrasounds and what babies are doing, it's like, you'll see that there's sexuality and genitality part of uh, Mm. infants lives so then if we were to kind of move that to a sense of sensuality i mean god gave us our bodies uh gave us the experience of being able to like behold the flight of an eagle to like feel you know a waterfall like it when you kind of look at your body and experience your body's ability to be present to pleasure you will see that you know if we are made in the image of god uh we are fully capable of finding and experiencing pleasure almost on a day by day moment by moment basis so i think that sense of our sensuality is part of what it means to be an image bearer of god so um so many things i mean there you know pleasure penis one of the points that i make even in my book is like the the clitoris has more nerve endings than the penis uh there's more pleasure associated there than even the male penis so then it becomes that question of like uh you know it has no other purpose except for sensual and sexual pleasure and god designed it that way so i think that's what we have to grapple with is there is sexuality and genitality and sensuality, um, and God loves all pleasure. God loves sex. Um, mm-hmm. But we are a little bit uncomfortable with that notion that God could love sex, love pleasure, love sensuality. But yeah. if we look at creation, if we look at pleasure, and we're to say that we are image bearers of this God, then I think it speaks to the reality of how much God is committed to mm-hmm. pleasure. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of minds are being blown right now. <laughs> you might have to just pause it real quick and just sit with that. Um, but my favorite part of the book is when you talked about sex being like being cut off or like, uh, like, yeah, mm-hmm. being cut off. Like, I'm like, wow, that just speaks directly to our desire to be together and like close to Christ as well. Like Christ in the church mm-hmm. is an image that I know people aren't comfortable talking about sex being imagery with that, but that's truly what it is. And as you're talking about sexuality yes. too, like if you guys th- listen to the word sensuality, you're engaging your senses. So God wants you mm-hmm. to engage with yourself, with others, with the world around you. So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and as you're talking too, I'm thinking about how sex can be an act of worship because we're coming together. There's a union there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also thinking about the opposite, right? If we're supposed to be engaging um, in sex in marriage in a commitment, then mm-hmm. what would that look like when we do it the opposite? Would that be pornography or would that be other ways that we're um, not loving each other, loving God well? So mm-hmm. can you expand a little bit on how unwanted sexual behavior is like a knockoff version of worship? I know you said that in your book. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what I was saying in, in the middle of that. But I think, you know, if worship is kind of concerned with a sense of like memory of like, I, we remember the saving and redeeming acts of God. So that would be worship. Worship is also about like, where do I put my trust in, in the midst of when all around is fallen, and I don't know where to go. Um, I look to the hills and where does my help come? My help comes from God. But then it's also, we know that worship is part of our lament. Uh, You know, Mm. Psalm 88 ends with a sense of like, darkness is a closer friend than you, oh God. And that's called worship is to say that darkness is a closer friend. So, Mm. you know, if, if we just stick with even those three categories, which would be too simplistic, but a sense of memory, uh, a sense of where we put our trust and a sense of, you know, where do where are we taking our lament? Well, if that's what good spirituality is all about, but then we look at something like porn. Um, oftentimes, a lot of us have a type of faith, a type of memory in porn being there as something of a rescuer to us, that in the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of life not working out, uh, that has been a place that we have gone to over and over again for a place of reprieve from some of the difficulties. Uh, and then we move into that category of trust. And, you know, a lot of people trust in porn and trust in unwanted sexual behavior to get them through uh, a fight in their marriage, uh, the loneliness of their life. And then if we move into that other category of you know, lament. Uh, we don't have our churches are not places of lament. Like mm. we, I, I can't remember the last church I have been to that really invited me to wrestle and to be angry with God uh, and to say to God, "Darkness has been a closer friend than you. Where have you been?" Uh, that's what you know. Worship in the Psalms is all about, but we don't have that in virtually any realm of our life. But where people do go with a lot of their lament and their anger is to unwanted sexual behavior. So that's where I'm saying, like, if worship is about those themes of remembrance and trust and lament, and we don't have good places in our lives that are inviting us to remember, that are inviting us to trust, that are inviting us to, um, yeah, lament so much of the heartache and trauma in our life, we are going to misplace our worship into something like porn. So, Mm. uh, you know, that's where I would say like, you know, porn and Jesus both appeal to the human heart because they're both kind of their appeals to be able to say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a form of rest. And porn might offer people seven to 20 minutes of rest per day, but then it actually compounds the shame and the difficulties. And I think that's the existential bind is, you know, in the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody, choose you this day who you will serve. And so I think, you know, Jesus is much more life-giving, much more of a place of rescue uh, than porn. But I think that's part of what people are consistently grappling with is porn is actually available available to me, unlike God seems to be on Mm. most evenings. Wow. That was beautiful. Oh, man. That's so good, guys. Man, you are giving them some good stuff today. So so with knowing that, and there's so many ways I can go Mm -hmm. right now, because I think it might be helpful for people to know to work against how to work against shame, but it sounds like we've been talking about love as well. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? How they can work against about the shame? shame? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of the point that I make in my book, this is like, usually some people will tell me it's like one of their favorite parts of the book is I reference this guy by the name of Andy Casagrande, who's the, uh, he's the videographer for the show Shark Week. Uh, and so this guy basically gets in the waters with great white sharks and swims directly at them with the camera. And so people are like, what are you doing, Andy? And he says uh, that what you're supposed to do is you swim right next to the shark and you swim at it with the camera. And then you the, basically what happens is the, the, the shark will swim up to the camera lens 
uh, bonk its nose against it, realize that it's not food, and then the shark has no idea what's happening because if you're a great white shark, everything in the whole entire ocean swims away from you, except for maybe an orca whale. Um, and so what he says is that when the shark makes its escape, that's when he makes his escape. And the point that he makes is that if you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. And to me, that has just a lot to do to teach us about shame, that most of us try to swim away from the accusations of shame in our life. But I think this kind of approach to healing is about being able to turn and face some of those great white memories, some of those great white places of shame in our life, and to swim directly at it in the presence of a therapist, in the presence of a good friend. Uh, and I think that's what we find is that the more that we swim toward shame, the more that that disempowers its presence in our life. So we have to swim at the shark of shame is what I say. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's like, I'm not swimming at that shark. Why would I do that? Yeah. I'm not either. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So what would you say are some ways that we can swim towards shame or what ways they can swim towards shame? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, M. Scott Peck says that mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. And so if you want to get mentally healthy, if you want to get spiritually healthy, it requires that we uh, commit to the reality of kind of what our life has been. And the reason why it's so important to be honest about the nature of our unwanted sexual behavior is that honesty is like a, a muscle that develops the more that we use it. So very early on in our recovery or our healing, it might be like, yeah, I struggle, there's an anger within me, there's an entitlement within me, there's a secretive component to who I am. But the more that I strengthen that muscle, the more that that will prepare me to go back to some more vulnerable stories in my life uh, that are actually quite, uh, quite a lot harder to share than the story of my own sexual shame. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people think that it's like really hard to be able to open up about an area of sexual brokenness. But what I can tell you is most people are so much more comfortable talking about how many people they have slept with and how much debris their sexual life has caused than to actually go back to that boy, that girl who experienced a level of abuse or abandonment and really see their face and kind of move towards them with a sense of compassion. Most of us look at our childhood self and it's kind of like, come on, you should be over this by now. I can't believe you're still struggling with this. And there's just, there's a commitment to not be very kind to some of those childhood stories. So the point of learning to face shame is that it begins with kind of some of our adult behaviors, but then far more it goes back into not necessarily our sin, but far more importantly, the places that we have been sinned against. And that's really where people have the most difficulty is not talking about their sin. Uh, they have much more difficult time talking about some of the ways that they have been harmed and hurt in the world. So I think of you know Jesus's words where he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Most people don't want to mourn their behavior or mourn their childhoods. It's, it's much more of this kind of a sense of mastery, or let me just find a willpower way to get through this, or let me try and pray my way out of this. But most of us have not really allowed comfort to come to some of these stories. So, yeah, definitely, I I completely agree with that. It's it's like interesting how how we as humans can desire something so deeply, but be like uh, repulsed by it at the same time, like try to avoid it at the same time. Like we know that we need to be held or we need to be comforted, but at the same time, we won't even allow that, allow ourselves that. Precisely. Yeah, precisely. So definitely it's, it's worth it. Just believing that you're worth it. And, um, what do you think, uh, or who do you think are some people or avenues that they can take in going on this journey of healing? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think in terms of like what you had described, Sonata, at the beginning, where it's like you are someone who has done 
some of this work. So in a way you are a guide and then you're going to be leading these groups. And so I think it's like, that's always so effective is to be able to get into a group with a really good guide that understands some of the journey and the path that needs to be taken. And so, you know, many years ago, there was an organization called Amnesty International that tried to offer uh, torture survivors free individual psychotherapy. And the program failed pretty miserably. And the reason why they it failed was they realized that torture survivors needed to be in a group setting where they could actually hear other people process some of the pain and trauma that they had been through in order to kind of have some of that Me Too experience of, oh yeah, that's what it was like for me. Because when we have been through trauma or we are in the midst of shame, uh, we have an area of our brain called Broca's area, and Broca's area goes offline in the midst of trauma. So Broca's area is responsible for speech and language. And so if you've ever been through you know, a breakup or had someone really meaningful in your life die, that sense of like, I have no words for what just took place. I, I don't know how to speak about this. That's because, like, quite literally, Broca's area has been off, is going offline, meaning you don't have language. So when you go into these groups and you hear other people bring language to realities that you probably have never named before about your mom, about your dad, about your childhood trauma, uh, and some of the intricacies and secrecy and deception of your behavior, you're going to be like, whoa, uh, I thought I was very unique within this, but it turns out like all of us have pretty complicated mothers and fathers that we have to deal with. All of us have areas of our own shame and secrecy and deception that need to be brought into the light of day. And so uh, I'm all for individual work. I think it's great. But I also think like being in groups and in communities are so effective as well. Perfect. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I don't remember who said this, but um, many, I feel like therapists say this, but basically you were hurt by people. So you'll also need to be healed mm -hmm. by people as well. Um, something similar yes. to that. I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> they said it way better than me. Yeah. Um, no, it's paraphrased so many different ways. Like yeah. where what's hurt in relationship exactly. needs to be healed in relationship. Exactly. See, there you go. You got it. Um, no, we are hurt in relationship and healed. And that's the dilemma. I forget. I think it's like a Harville Hendricks phrase. Okay. I don't, don't quote me quoting someone else on <laughs> yeah, that. Don't quote us, but you get the gist of it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's, that's definitely really good. So if you were to see a person who has sexual integrity in this arena, what would that person look like? What would they be doing? Um, what would their life look like? Mm -hmm. What does that even yeah, mean as well um, to have sexual integrity? Yeah. So a lot of times um, people tend to think about like if I could just have sexual integrity as kind of the absence of sexual brokenness, meaning like, oh, I've gotten six months without looking at porn, or I've been, you know, five years without an extramarital affair. And so they usually think about it in terms of like the absence of a, of a behavior. And I think the problem with that is like when you think about something like Galatians 5, where it says that it's for freedom that you have been set free. Uh, like freedom from sexual brokenness is important, but far more the question is like, what is your freedom for? So I meet a ton of people that come out of recovery programs and they're like, Jay, I've been sober for six months, for three months, for five years. And here's the meetings that I'm going to. Here's my, here's my track record of all the great therapists that I've seen. And then they arrive at my office and there's just like a sense of deadness to them. Like there's no life. And so part of what how I've begun talking about them is like, it's like you just took me into your backyard and you're saying like, look at my backyard. There's no weeds anywhere. And then I'm like, but the elephant in the room is that like, there's nothing in your backyard but dust. So mm. like, why are you proud of this? So like the point is actually to make a garden that you can eventually eat from. So are there going to be weeds to pick in the service of that garden? Yes, inevitably. But that's what we want to grow. So when I'm looking at sexual integrity, it's not so much like 
genital integrity, but far more that sense of like, are they coming alive? Um, are there places that they are going back to find healing? But far more that question of what do I want to do with this one wild and precious life that I've been given? Um, and do they have a sense of longing? Uh, are they pathologizing their desire? Or are they actually setting their desire free to pursue things that bring beauty and sensuality and life to them? Uh, so that's what I think in terms of integrity is not so much the absence of a behavior, but far more the presence of life would be the first category. And then the second category is from a guy by the name of Johan Hari. And he says that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. And I really like that, um, that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. But the only nuance that I would make is that I don't think it's just a connection to other people. I think it's also a connection to ourselves. So we know that trauma creates a division and a fragmentation of self. And so connection is also the sense of, I know how to connect to myself. Like I like myself. I like being in the present. And most people that I work with that are struggling with unwanted sexual behavior, they do not like themselves. There's a lot of self-hatred. They don't like being alone. Um, and so they use a lot of their creative energy for more compulsive purposes. So when I'm looking at like the nature of healing and a lot of my clients' lives, I'm, I'm looking at that category of connection. Like, do they have good friendships? Are they known and deeply known and close relationships? But far more, do they also like to connect with themselves? Like, are they developing as an artist? Do they like baking? Do they like uh, gardening? Do they like playing the piano or writing poetry or some creative act? Um, and those are the two things that I'm really looking for is the presence of life and then the presence of like a deep connection with others and themselves. Yeah, that's so good. <clears throat> and I started reading the book halfway through meeting with another client that I've been having a hard time. I was having a hard time mm. changing his view of himself. And the part where mm. you talk about, um, I can't remember what you said, but it's it's thinking of it more like for, like, what am I doing this for? And yes. focusing on yeah. like what he cares about, what he what his aspirations are for life instead of what mm -hmm. he doesn't want to be doing. That definitely was so much more helpful for him too. Now he definitely is still struggling with, you know, going back to seeing himself shamefully mm -hmm. and, and um stuff like that. But when he is focused on things that he's as aspiring to compared to talking mm -hmm. about his shame, you can see the change in his face. So yes. I think that part was yeah. really helpful um for me. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Is there any last things that you want the people to know? Anything that you think is really important for them um, on their journey with pornography or just sexuality as mm -hmm. a whole? I think like where we began with, you know, the question that you had asked me of kind of like, essentially, what do you think about when you think about God? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that notion of God's kindness and kind of curiosity I think it's just so central to the healing journey. Like when when Adam has just eaten of the tree that he was commanded not to eat from, God doesn't say like bounce your eyes from the next tempting piece of fruit. Uh, it, you know, God says like where are you? And then to uh, one of my favorite questions in the Bible when Hagar has been traumatized by the first family of our faith, has just been severely mistreated by Sarai. Uh, you know. Abram abdicates all responsibility, lets the abuse take place, and this teenage uh, female Egyptian slave is on the run from the first family of the faith. And the angel of the Lord finds her and basically says, where do you come from? Where are you going? And I don't really think that most of us think that that's the experience of God in our lives, is this kind of God, the angel of the Lord, coming to a place of trauma, coming to a place of abandonment, and saying, where do you come from, and where is it that you want to go with your life? So um, in all of those examples that I just provided, God comes, or the angel of the Lord comes, with a level of questions that are really meant to draw out 
this sense of uh, what's your story? Where do you come from? Where are you going? And so I think if we're hearing the voice of God in our lives, it's not a place of judgment or condemnation. It's really drawing us to deeper reflection about how all these behaviors came to be. Uh, And I hope that that's what people have in this is that, yes, we need to outgrow some of these behaviors, but far more this work is about understanding that uh, you don't just have stories, you are a story. And the the more of a sense that you have is like, this is what my story reveals. Uh, I think that's where integrity comes in. I think that's where joy, peace, the ability to to connect with yourself and others really comes in as not fond of every chapter, but I like where this story is headed. Mm, That's good. Yeah. And as you were talking, it made me think too about how um, the Bible says that, you know, what draws us to Mm. Christ? Is it condemnation? Is it uh, contempt Mm. from his part? No, it is his loving kindness. And that's what we're offering ourselves. And, you know, you've been in your work is very clear throughout your, um, your book. So I love that you were able to offer people that like it's loving kindness that brings us back to ourselves Mm -hmm. and back to Christ as well. So yes. Yeah. Beautiful. All righty. Well, were you going to say something? No, I just agreed. I said, indeed. Perfect. All right. So if you guys want to follow this wonderful human, um, where can they find you and what might they be looking forward to? Yeah. Um, website is jay-stringer.com. There's another Jay Stringer that's also an author. He's a like a British crime fiction author. <laughs> so I think he got to the, he published his books first. So uh. he's got all of the handles that I needed. Um, <laughs> but I'm on Instagram as well. I, occasionally, hopefully more in the next year. Um but they can go to website. That's where assessments, uh, books, uh, workbooks, courses. So we have a lot of resources for individuals, for churches, for therapists. So it's kind of what we want to do is continue to change the conversation with books and resources. But then also we have uh, something called an unwanted guide training. So if you're a pastor or a therapist that wants to do some of your own work to understand your sexual story, we have training programs for therapists and pastors and coaches to understand more of their stories so that they're more effective in working with others. And then I do a handful of intensives as well for people that want to do a, a deep dive into their story. And then we are also developing something that we're calling women of desire groups. And these are led by my wife and some other team members on, you know, it's difficult enough to embrace desire in a Christian setting, but to be a a woman of desire, like that is infinitely more complicated. And so we have these groups and workshops really designed for women to, you know, get a sense of how they have been led to foreclose their desire in their families or in their church communities? And then what does it mean to reclaim those desires and live with them and honor them instead of uh, burying them? So that's a new resource that our team is developing, but website will have information about all that or Instagram, Facebook. So Perfect. All wonderful ways to get in contact with him. Um, yeah. So I just want to say it was an honor to meet with you. Just want to uh, commend you for uh, using your talent um, for Christ and helping so many people. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, guys. So as you know, you can follow the parallel at the parallel pod on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube. Remember to speak the truth in love, kiss the sun, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Bye. Bye.